Today's scripture is taken from Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 28. Once again Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick I have not come, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the care worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathiah, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Well, we're continuing our study in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And as we complete chapter 2, uh, Jesus is uh, making some statements here. He kind of gives us a mission statement sort of of sorts of why he's still here on the earth, uh, why he hasn't just gone to the cross. We'll see that in a moment. And, you know, as we talk about mission statement, our mission statement is this, is loving God with all that we are while making more and better followers of Christ. And that comes from the great uh, commandment, the greatest commandment, which was given in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the great commission found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 through 20. Loving God with all that we are, the greatest commandment. And then the Great Commission, making more and better followers of Christ. We see this, and Jesus has stirred up some controversy here. Matter of fact, there are five controversial things that he's done just in chapter 2 alone. The paralytic, when he healed him, he, uh, at this point, forgives him of his sins. And that causes quite a stir. After that, he will see that we'll see today that he calls Matthew or Levi, same person, <clears throat> he calls him to, into his intimate fellowship. And that caused Tristur because he's a, a publican, he's a tax collector. And then we will see that not only that, 
He uh, he allows other people to come in and to be a part of it. He uh, we see that he uh, basically breaks the ritual law, and then on the fasting, he uh, he is condemned because of the fasting because his he's not fasting and his disciples are not fasting on the proper days to fast. There were two days that you were to fast according to Jewish custom, not according to the law of God, but according to Jewish custom. And then he heals on the Sabbath. He he reconstitutes the Sabbath, so to speak, and he's doing some things there that he shouldn't do in their estimation according to tradition. And then he heals, which is definitely one of the violations of their tradition as they interpreted the Scripture. Now, I think it's important that we understand who they are, okay? So let's talk about that for a moment because you're going to see several titles in here. Uh, one of the titles, one of the words that you're going to see as we look at this new agenda uh, by Jesus, one of the terms is that of sinners. Now, what is a sinner? Well, in the context that it's in, uh, it simply regards anybody who is a Jew who is not living out the Jewish customs and, and religion that were given. So if they were not abiding by the law and they were not attempting to abide by the law, then they were considered sinners. So that's the first group that we see. Uh, then we see, who, well, who is they? That's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are those who uh, are kind of the religious spokesmen of that day. They really started off quite well before the first century. Uh, back after the destruction of the temple, they kind of found themselves, charged themselves of keeping the law and of interpreting the law and keeping it going after the temple had been destroyed. But what happens as often as the case, uh, they began to uh, add things to the law of God, they began to uh, make it very legalistic and very uh, exclusive. And now they become kind of the judge and the jury uh, of the society of Judaism of this day. And then there's the Sadducees. The Sadducees were actually more in the authoritative position, uh, but they were compromising with the Roman government. The Roman government recognized them as the religious leaders, so to speak. Now, even though the Pharisees typically had more respect and, and uh, more to say about it, it was the Sadducees who were appointed to the positions of authority uh, by the Romans themselves, typically. And, and then you have Matthew, who's a publican. That word publican uh, simply means a state or local official. He was a servant of the people, supposedly, as we would think of today. Uh, but Matthew is a tax collector. And uh, he's certainly ostracized from his society. Matter of fact, Matthew, uh, we know this from history, from historically, that there were three reasons that uh, publicans and tax collectors, particularly Matthew, would have been an outcast in that day. Three, three things about him. First of all, politically, he was on the wrong side. He was uh, endorsing the Roman government by simply working for them. So he was regarded by his people as a traitor. He, the people who are, are oppressing us, who have taken over our country, who are implementing these high taxes, who've taken away our freedom, he's working with them. So he's considered a traitor at this point. Secondly, he's considered ceremonially unclean because he keeps working with these sinners. He keeps touching them. Uh, if you were a good ceremonial clean Jew, you didn't touch people who were unclean. And then thirdly, morally, he was an outsider. He was outcast. Uh, because typically, almost exclusively, tax collectors, they gleaned their money. They got what Rome required them to get, and then they got as much from you as they thought was possible. And so they were seen as thieves. We know that of Zacchaeus, of course, uh, as we look later on in Luke. So here are some of the individuals and the, kind of the context 
that we're looking at and that we're reading. And um, we will see that uh, Jesus uh, kind of completely uh, just uh, not only ignores, but just walks right through these doors that people have, uh, these doors and walls that people have put up between them and certain other individuals. Now, let's look at our text here in Mark chapter 2, and let's kind of walk line by line through this. As we're doing this, uh, I think it's important to realize that uh, Matthew is about to be called to leave his money, to leave his position of authority, to leave everything that he's earned, everything that he's worked for, his position. It was probably a difficult position for him to obtain. He's about to walk away from it when Jesus calls. And it's interesting, there's an organization called Asian Access, uh, a mission organization in Asia, and um, they have these seven questions that they ask before someone's baptized in the faith, and they ask them these seven questions. Are you willing to, to leave your home and lose the blessing of your father? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to go into the village uh, of those who have persecuted you and forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? So some big questions, and we think it's hard to come to church in the rain. Uh, so, I mean, it uh, kind of tells you what discipleship really is, doesn't it? Well, let's look here in our text in verse 13 of chapter 2. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him. And he began to teach them. And he walked along. He saw, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, again, uh, Levi is Matthew, the disciple that we know as Matthew. And the Bible tells us that he is sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, this isn't typically what we think as an IRS guy where he's sending you an email or a letter or a phone call. Uh, what's occurring here is he's basically on the major thoroughfare in Capernaum. Uh, that, that comes from Egypt. And it was a major trade point. And it, it was a road that you kind of had to take if you were going to be on a road at all. Uh, it was next to the lake. And it was the major, it was the major entry point into the area. And so they had a, what we would call a, a toll booth, so to speak, today. You know, I got a letter from the nice toll people this week. I've got a toll tag. I've had one forever. But somehow I've gone. It didn't count a couple of times on one day that I went through. And so uh, I guess I ignored it the first time. My dollar and 58 cent charge or whatever it is, and now it's $8. And then they inform me uh, by the end of May, it'll be $85. I'm thinking, are you just trying to rip me off at this point? I got a toll tag, and uh, somehow it didn't work in your little system, and I'm going to get charged. So I'm going to, you know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to write that silly check. I'm going to call them, and I'm going to talk about it, and we're going to compromise, and I'm going to write them a check. That's the compromise. Uh, and uh, I'm going to say, I got a toll tag. Can you tell me what's going on? They go, I don't know, sir. Uh, you you're welcome to, to hire an attorney or whatever it is you're going to do. And I'm thinking, really, for a toll tax. So uh, so I'm going to pay that tax. And I'm annoyed by that. I remember when I moved to Dallas, I was annoyed that I had to pay uh, pay that toll to get, get on the road. And if not, I'd try the back road because it would take me about four times as long. you know. And finally, I had to break down and buy the tax. Okay? So I, I bought the tax. I'm not happy about it, but I got the toll tax. Okay? And I pay the tolls to ride on the road. Well, that's nothing compared to what they had to do. They're coming into town or they're leaving town, and most people traded goods, okay? You you might come through and only have a few coins. If you didn't have anything, they'd just take a couple of coins. But what they usually took was your trade. So if you're a fisherman and you come with a hundred and fish, Matthew would stop you and you'd go, Well, you know, the toll today is twenty five fish. And you've just lost a quarter 
of all your profits for what you're going to feed your family, for the money that you're going to get. It's going to have to come. And you had no course. There would be Roman soldiers there, and you didn't have any choice. You could be arrested, or you could give them whatever Matthew said. Or maybe you had furs, or maybe you had uh, some crops that you you were taking to market. Same thing. I'll have thir- It's 30% today. And you had no course of action. So you dreaded it. You think you'd rather talk. I mean, they really dreaded it, but they had no option if they were going to sell their goods and services. And so that's what Matthew's doing it, doing on behalf of the government. And so we see here that as he walked alongside him to the tax collector's booth, Jesus says, follow me. And Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Matthew gets up and follows him. And he's probably heard Jesus preach. He's probably heard the stories, but he hadn't been going to synagogue, hadn't been in temple, because remember, he's excluded from going to church. He wouldn't be allowed in. He'd be stopped at the door. And so, of course, Jesus calls him. This is probably scandalous at best, just him calling him to come and follow him. But Matthew does it, leaving his position, leaving his money, leaving his livelihood, and he follows Jesus. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So now here's the picture. Jesus has called Matthew to follow him. He's gotten up and he's followed him. And now he's coming. Jesus is going to his house to eat dinner. And he's going to eat dinner. And what does Matthew do? Matthew has a feast and he invites all his publican, sinner, tax collector friends. And they all come. And what's significant about this is that if you were a Jew and you had a meal with someone, what you just did was you said, I fully accept and identify with this individual. It wasn't like today. I mean, we would think, oh, you know that person or you care. But no, it was much more intimate than that. It's not a sexual thing, but it was full acceptance. Matter of fact, when he went to his house, I don't know if you remember, I did have this covering up, but, um, you know, at my house, my mom, growing up, we had a couple of couches. There was a couch in the living room. It always had a sheet over it, and uh, that meant we couldn't get on it. We couldn't touch it, and if you were really special, mom would say, pull the sheet off the couch. We got company coming, and, um, you know, that's kind of the way we still do church a lot of times today, isn't it? Before Christ, we're going to church, get our right clothes on, let's get all ready, let's get all dressed up, and... Look right, because we're, we're going to church. We want to look right. We want to look our best. But what's interesting is we're talking about this. Um, Jesus comes into Matthew's house, and they're eating together. And you say, well, what's the big deal on that? Well, in that day and age, they didn't have table and chairs like we know it today. So what they would do is they would have couches. Now, it didn't look like this by any means. Uh, it was probably very low to the floor, and or just a set of pillows, maybe uh, it may be on something if you were really wealthy, but it was considered a, a couch. And when you would have your meal, you would recline and you would recline on the couch. And so here's the picture. Jesus is basically lying down on the couch with all these sinners. and He's eating with them. And the Pharisees look and they see that he's lying down. With, let me ask you this today. Um, if I come to your house. And I lie down on the couch. You know what that means? It might mean I'm rude, but um, but it also means I'm extremely comfortable at your house. 
That means we've got a great relationship, okay? I'm comfortable enough to allow you because most people I go to the house and I just stand there uh, because it's a formal deal and I you know, want to keep on my best manners and I want to stay too long lest they find out how rude I am. So, okay, I, so I, it's, it's, it's not a situation where you just come in and make yourself comfortable. And I may sit down, but then I sit down properly, you know. But if I'm doing this, I mean, I'm all in. I'm not worried about what you think. We got a great relationship. You already know me. I ain't hiding nothing. That's Jesus. Jesus comes and he begins to eat. And if you see all these folks lying there, I mean, we had the women's retreat. I bet you there's some of them were in their room lying down together. Well, they're, they're pretty close. Okay. But we don't, even in our culture today, we don't lie down. And again, I mean this in a non-sexual. We don't lie down with people we don't know really, really well. We're watching football or whatever. Okay. That's just the posture we take. It's it's a sign of, of closeness and of complete comfortability. And that's what Jesus is doing. And that, as the Pharisees look at it, just go, you've got to be kidding me. Look at that. Look at what he's doing. Oh, good night. Does he not realize what he's doing? Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. The Bible continues here. The Bible tells us, that on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And Jesus says, hey, guys, here's the deal. I didn't come for everybody who's got it, got their act cleaned up. For those of you who think you're righteous, for those of you who think you're holy, think you got it all together, think you're better than everybody else. I didn't come to call you. Now, religion, all throughout history, this is the way religion happens. You do good things, you're righteous, you're holy, you do the right things, you say the right things, you go to the right places, you wear the right clothes, got the right haircut, you don't have any tattoos, you do whatever it is that makes you think you're righteous. And you do nice things and you don't say bad words. That's, that's a good guy, that's a good man, I tell you. People who are bad, drink too much, smoke, curse, they do whatever it is. They're the bad people. God doesn't like them. So that's what we do. The good people and the bad people. That's how it's done. You do all the things you're supposed to do. And that makes you a good, righteous man. You don't do the things you're supposed to. You're a sinner. It's not what Jesus said at all. You know what Jesus said? He said, we're all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Jesus says, you know, in religion, the good are in, the bad are out. You know what Christianity says? You know what Jesus says? He says, the proud are out and the humble are in. So Jesus says, you know what? I don't care what you think your works are. Matter of fact, your great, your works are as filthy rags in the eyes of God. It is you in a heart position where you recognize, Jesus, I'm a sinner. My sin looks different and smells different and acts different, but my sin is pride and it's arrogance and it's selfishness and it's exclusivity. Where this sin just looks different. It's not nice and clean. And Jesus said, you all need to come and repent. You all need to recognize that you're a sinner. And if you can't recognize you're a sinner, I'm not here for you. I'm not here for you. You've got to recognize your need. I didn't come for the people who think they have it all wrapped up. And think they are, they're, they're right. They've already got their own salvation. 
They've already earned it. They're their own Savior. Their own mechanism. I came for people who need a Savior and know it and recognize it. In fact, what Jesus is saying here, the Bible goes on and says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Well, that's a good question. John was a good guy. His disciples fasted twice a week on the customary fasting days. Monday and Thursday, we fast. And everybody does it. But apparently, Jesus is doing this, eating with the wrong people, having lying down on their couch, and it's on a fast day to top it all off. On one of the fasting days. And what does Jesus say about that? Well, first of all, they don't have the guts to tell Jesus, by the way. Uh, but he knows. He overhears them. And he, he has this whole God thing going on that he always knows what's going on. And then on hearing this, he said, you know, he tells them. Jesus says, well, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will take, be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. You see, in, in that day and age, it was customary that when a couple would be married, that the bride and groom, would, they would actually live in the extra room that had been built onto their parents' house. They would be there for the first week, and it would kind of be a time of celebration all week, and the parents and the friends and the close relatives uh, would all kind of, quote, help them out. They would, they would serve them, and they would provide food, and they would work on the room and do everything. That was your first week of marriage. And that was a time where you would eat and you would feast, and you were exempt from fast, fasting. Even by the Jewish customs, you were exempt for that week if you were a family member or one of the two bride's groom friends. If you were one of those close-knit friends, then you, that was a time to celebrate. And Jesus is taking that picture and that analogy. He goes, look, the bridegroom's here. It's time to celebrate. We're not fasting right now. There's coming a day. He's going, fasting's not bad. There's coming a day where I'm going to be taken away. And he's uh, given an allusion to the fact that he's going to be on the cross, that I'm going to die. There's coming that time that you should fast. But today's a day of celebration. Today's the day I'm here. It's the wedding time. And Jesus gives them that picture. No one who sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, if he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst and the skins, the skins in both the wine and the wineskins will be buried. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. He gives the picture of, uh, of the patch. He said, you don't take a new piece of, a new cloth. And put it on an old, on an old garment. The reason being is it's new and it hasn't been pulled and torn and worn properly and it just looks silly and it won't even latch on properly. You wouldn't do that. You would take it and you would distress it and you would pull it, you would wet it, you would heat it and, and put moisturizer and you would get it to where it would look proper and then you would, you would place it there. And Jesus has given the picture. He goes, look, the law was the old covenant. But I've come to bring the fulfillment of the new covenant, the grace covenant that I'm going to fulfill. And the law was never intended to be your savior, but it was to be a guide for you to understand what it meant to walk before God and how you were to live. But it was never meant to be your savior, so to speak. And now you've made it your savior. And then Jesus gives the analogy of the wineskins. He said, you're not going to take this old law and just kind of try to insert me in it. There were many who were trying to get Jesus to compromise. 
But Jesus said, no, I'm come to give you a new life and a new way to live in a new covenant. And he says, you know what? You just try to place me into your paradigm. You just try to place me into your laws and just add one more thing. You've missed it. You've missed it all. And Jesus gives that picture that they would have well been familiar with those skins that they had taken from a goat or a sheep. And after they had taken that skin, they would tan it and they would clean it. And then they would fill it with the grape juice. And then it would ferment in there. And then it would expand. And there would be the wine. And uh, if you did that a few times, and that skin became very brittle. And, it, and if you put it in there over a few times, then it has expanded if you filled it up then it would burst. You know, when I was a kid, we used to um, used to raise corn and hay and some other things, and we always had these old feed sacks. And I would have to, Dad would say, go over there and fill that feed sack up with corn and bring it back over here, and we'll feed the cattle. And what I learned is if I, if I found one that was tearing and was stretched, one of those old feed sacks, and I tried to put that corn in there, it would always burst at the bottom. It couldn't hold it. I needed to find a newer sack if I was going to load it up with corn. It's the same picture here. Jesus Christ is saying, you know what? It's not about you trying to keep all the laws, in particular the traditions and the rituals that you've come up with. I want you to know that the new law is here. The law of grace, the covenant, the new covenant of grace is being given to you. And I am the fulfillment of that covenant. He continues on and he says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as the disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisee said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Again, uh, in their commentary, so to speak, it wasn't really commentary, it was extra traditions that were written on to the law and how to live them out. Uh, it was forbidden that you could pluck any kind of grain uh, on the Sabbath. And he answered, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus just said, hey, I'm the God of the Sabbath. It wasn't made for you to obey it. It was made as a gift to you. Just as Jesus is a gift to us today. He's saying, look, you want to make it so much about being good and following the rules. And you want to become your own savior. And you, you've made your own system. You've made your own God. You've made your own idol. Hey, it was never about that. This was a gift I was giving you. That you could stop and rest your body and find rest and peace in me. It was a time to worship. It was a time to know me. It wasn't found in what you were doing, but in who I am. Jesus is redefining Christianity because Christianity doesn't exist. He's redefining Judaism. It's becoming Christianity and he's telling what it means to be a follower and a disciple of Christ. Now, I want to give you some practical examples of that today so that you can take these with you. Uh, and I want us to give some ways that we can become a disciple today. We see what Matthew did and we see through the life, we see through these examples uh, that, first of all, Sometimes we are discipled privately through solitude and study. Jesus would take time uh, to be still, and he would get to, he would have time before the Father, just himself. And I think that's still important for us today. We call them quiet times. We call them Bible study, personal Bible study. But that's one of the ways that we're discipled today through private 
discipleship. Here, if you can put those up there, that'd be great. Uh, number two, group discipleship. Bible studies in small groups. Bible studies in small groups. That's why we have Bible studies at our church. That's why we have small groups to do life together. That's another form of discipleship as we uh, connect with each other, as we do life together. Number thir- three, personal discipleship. One-on-one. We have some folks that will take you through one-on-one discipleship if you've never done that. We encourage you to consider that. Or if you would like to be a part of that ministry, we would love for you to do that. And we see Jesus doing that. Practical discipleship. Serving and giving. We see Jesus constantly serving. We see him giving. We see him sharing. That's practical discipleship. And then proclamation discipleship. That's exactly what Jesus was doing by going to Matthew's home. He goes and he encourages them. And he builds relationships with them. And he shares the truth. He shares the faith, so to speak. What about with my children? How do I disciple my children today? Well, let me give you some simple things that you can do to disciple your children today. One, buy them a Bible that they can understand. There are so many out there now. You can go to any Christian bookstore or even online. Get them a Bible that they can easily understand. Number two, teach them to give. Teach them the importance of giving. That's discipleship. Teach them to give. Let them see you give and teach them to give. Number three, teach them to ask forgiveness. You know, I, I had a had a family bring a little girl here this morning to me uh, for something that she had done last week, and they said, "All right, you got to you got to tell the pastor you're sorry." So she came. She told me she was sorry and explained the situation, what had occurred. And uh, you know, I thought that was a great lesson. You know, and she'll, uh, unfortunately, she'll always remember saying that to me. Uh, but, but no, that's a great lesson. It'll always stick in her head. And, and that, that uh, family is teaching her the importance of forgiveness and asking forgiveness. But you know what's just as important as doing that? Number two is for you to ask your children for forgiveness when you mess up. That really teaches them the validity of it. When you scream at them or when you say things you shouldn't say in front of them, when you do things, uh, when you break the rules, so to speak, that you've established in the house, then say, you know what, I want to ask you to forgive me. I, you know, we have to ask our kids to forgive us at least once a week, if not once a day. Um, aren't you glad you come here? Uh, but it's a great, it's a great, great lesson for them to, to have to do it and then also for them uh, to see you doing it. Allow them to be a part of your spiritual life, part of your worship experience, part of prayer in your life, volunteering. If you volunteer at the church and you're old enough to be a part of that, uh, when new neighbors move into the neighborhood, taking them with you to meet those new neighbors and establish those relationships. Teach them to pray. Teach them the Lord's Prayer. Teach them blessing. Teach them personal prayers. Uh, you'll, you'll be amazed how, how much your children can learn. I, my three-year-old just started uh, praying. She hears us doing it all the time. We hadn't given her words. She'd been singing this song that she'd learned in preschool for a year and a half. And the other day, she just starts praying. We're not really sure what all she's saying, but she just, she just kind of starts praying. You know where she gets that? Because she hears us do it. Uh, every day, at least twice a day. And lastly, encourage them to invite their friends to church. If they see you inviting people, and if they talk about friends that they have, encourage them to invite their friends. Those are some basic things that you can do uh, to disciple your children, as well as things that you can do to make sure you're discipled yourself. Uh, Jesus has made that call. And the question becomes, are we going to become folks who lie with Jesus who commune with Jesus, or is our relationship with Christ one of we simply stand before? That's great. You can stand before Him, but Jesus doesn't just—he doesn't just want you standing on Sundays. He wants you to invite Him into your life, whether we're watching television, whether we're eating, whether we're with our family. 
And he wants you to invite, you, invite him in his life and he wants to become a central figure in your life. Intimate. Impacted. How do we do that? By beginning the discipleship process. What about you today? Have you ever trusted Christ with your life? Are you following through as a disciple? I want to challenge you to do that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time and thank you for the great gift of salvation that's been given to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we look on that list of the publican, the sinner, uh, the tax collector, as we look at the Pharisee and the Sadducees who compromised, when we look at Matthew, God, I pray that we can say, I, I identify. I want to be that guy who follows Jesus without compromise, but also looks to include as many people as possible. I want to be that guy who's being discipled. Lord, I'm taking that responsibility for myself and I'm investing my life in others and others investing their lives in me. God, we want to thank you for that opportunity that you've given us to grow in faith and truth and knowledge. And Lord, we place this before you. If there's one that needs to come today, I pray that you draw them by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Amen.